I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this episode of The Sound of Success is Dave Foley, actor, comedian, director, producer, and writer. Dave is probably best known as a co-founder of the comedy group The Kids in the Hall, whose groundbreaking sketch comedy show, The Kids in the Hall, ran on CBC in Canada and HBO and later CBS in the US from 1988 through 1995. They wrapped that run with the 1996 film Brain Candy, which ironically is the starting point for their return to our screens in 2022 with their new Amazon Prime series, which we'll be talking about shortly, I'm sure. Dave is also known for playing Dave Nelson in the sitcom News Radio which ran on NBC for five seasons from 1995 through 99. He also had a recurring role in the TV land show Hot in Cleveland and has worked extensively in animation, including as the main character Flick in A Bug's Life and Terry and Terry in Monsters University. Dave, I'm a fan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick. And uh, I'm just realizing this is the longest I've ever heard you talk without you making me feel stupid for not knowing some brilliant artist. <laughs> I'm very fortunate that I've worked in Los Angeles for, uh, uh, well, a number of years now, about 24 or 25. And obviously there's a lot of people in the entertainment business who've heard my voice uh, in the morning. So uh, nice to know that I've been able to turn you on to some music through the years. Yes, indeed. I want to talk about the new series, but perhaps I could ask you a couple of other questions first up about your start in the business. I know you began early with stand-up and improv classes with Second City uh, before meeting Kevin McDonald and then the rest of the guys, Mark McKinney, Bruce McCulloch and Scott Thompson, who would form the kids. Can you spin it back a couple of years for us? Uh, what kind of actual kid were you? Um. I was, uh, I guess, mostly a painfully shy kid uh, who uh, moved around a lot. But then I kind of fell in with a great group of people in an, an alternative high school called uh, C School, School of Experiential Education. Hmm. And uh, and it was there when I was uh, 17 that I finally had like a really, I had this great sort of core group of friends who I used to make laugh all the time. And it was one of those friends, uh, a, a girl named uh, Evelyn Chapea on the bus ride. We, you know, taking the TTC to school, which was about an hour ride. Uh, I making was making her laugh all the way going, and we got and as we got off the bus, she said, "You know, you should do stand up." And I thought, "Oh, I never thought of that." And so I started trying to write some, right. and that kind of started me on the road to doing comedy, and you know, which led to me meeting Kevin and becoming the kids in the hall. Seventeen's pretty pretty young. Did you drop out of school at the same time? Just about then, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it took a while because I actually took the school calling me up one, t one day and saying, are you still enrolled? And I went and I said, yes. And they said, well, you haven't been to any classes in six months. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, oh, then in that case, I think I dropped out. Yeah. Oh, I was supposed to actually come. Yeah. Yeah. So I must, yeah, I, I must have been distracted. Now, I, I know you did a little bit of stand up at, at that time. What, what was that mm. like? I mean, you said you were a painfully shy 17 year old. What was it like standing up in, in front of a bunch of people who you didn't know? I, well, it's, I mean, yeah, getting up in front of people I didn't know was terrifying to me. Uh, and I would get very frightened, like very anxious before doing it. But once I was up there, I found I loved it. And, and, it, and honestly, it turned out I was good at it, which was, which is why I loved it, I guess. Mm. Uh, like for my like for my first stand up set, I did all right, and I would kept going back and doing more open mic sets and writing new, and I kept writing new material all the mm -hmm. time, and it, and it's always but still very always, always anxious doing it, but I just found I really like liked it and thought I was good at it, and then just thought I oh, if I just study hard enough the the craft of it, um you know hopefully I'll stop being terrified of going on stage. Who was some of your comedy 
heroes at, at the time when you say you studied it? Who were the people you were yeah. watching? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up on, on people like George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And, uh, and then when I got serious about comedy, I started, I went back and studied and I was obviously a great fan of like, uh, Bob Newhart mm. as well, but I was started studying comedy and I dove into Lenny Bruce pretty heavily. And so I went, you know, wanted to kind of find the roots of where, you know, people like Carlin and Pryor came from, you know, and, uh, Dick Gregory, I, I, I listened to a lot. And so I just really kind of tried to study the, the craft of it and the structure of it. How old were you when you guys got together and uh, started the kids? Uh, well, Kevin and I met when I was 19. And I guess uh, about a year after that, I think about a year, maybe two years after that, the other guys moved to Toronto from Calgary mm. and we met. And so Kevin and I met them and uh, we all sort of decided to merge our two troops into one. Was there a manifesto when you guys first started out? I mean, bringing these different viewpoints in. Um, what did you set out to do? No, I think we very, uh, maybe very deliberately didn't have a manifesto or any set of rules, but there was just kind of a sense of, uh, when you were being boring, uh, <laughs> you know, or when you were don't doing be boring. Yeah. Don't be boring and don't do something that somebody else would do, you know? And that was kind of the only thing that was kind of the only rule is that if, if you came in with an idea that sounded like somebody else, then it would get just thrown away. Nobody would pay any attention to it. So you had to come in with something that nobody had ever heard before. You came out of the gate with a, with a bang. Um, how did things evolve through the, the different seasons? I, I guess it, 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 uh, haphazardly, I think it evolved. I mean, the first year was a lot of us just learning, uh, how TV works and learning, you know, certainly learning how some of our, what we thought were our classic stage sketches, uh, were not our best TV sketches mm -hmm. and and learning how to write for TV, uh, specifically. Yeah. The, the first year, I think it was like a training year just to learn how the, how the machinery worked. And then the second year we kind of had full control over what we were doing. And we started experimenting more with the uh, single camera film pieces and just sort of writing different, having different structures to the kind of stuff we were writing. You also were not just doing sketches though, were you, you, you started moving into almost like mini films on, on some of the, uh, on, on some of the comedy ideas that you would work out through a whole show. Yeah. We really, we really got interested in being very film, very cinematic in right. what we were doing. We wanted to treat the comedy, uh, comedy with the same respect that you would treat drama, you know, with that, you know, comedy, you know, there's no reason that comedy shouldn't be well lit and well shot right. and, and well acted, you know, we really thought, you know, you should work. Uh, hard to make the characters real and believable, no matter how silly the premise was. And when it comes, that, sorry, go on. No, you go on. <laughs> no, you go on. <laughs> what, what I was going to say is I want to come back and talk about, you know, how things sort of finished up there. And then obviously all these years later, bringing it back. But I also want to talk about some of the other things that you've done. The original kids shows achieved cult status pretty much from the pilot onwards and have since gone on into legendary cult status now. But that doesn't pay the bills. You're all essentially working <laughs> no, writers yeah, and yeah. actors. Uh, and I mentioned news radio, which was a show that I liked a lot. What was it like doing a weekly sitcom? Uh, it was great. I mean, it was great uh, because it was a great show. I mean, I, I imagine it wouldn't have been as great if it had been a terrible show. <laughs> uh, I would have felt pretty demoralized, you know, coming from the <laughs> kitchen every the day to do a crap show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But it was, yeah, it was an amazing show. I mean, Paul Sims, who created it, was one of the main writers on the Larry Sanders show and, and was a, used to be a Letterman writer. And so the, you know, the, the writing and the, the, the writing staff he put together was so great. And on top of the, the, the cast he put together awesome. was yeah. amazing. Um, so I was, you know, I was walking out of the kids in the hall where, you know, everybody else in the group was somebody I could learn from as a, you know, as an, as both an actor and a writer and walking into this group of incredible actors. So it was really fun. And for me, it was kind of like, it was a bit like uh, semi-retirement as well. Cause I'd spent, you know, all these years where, where I'm writing, you know, writing, directing, producing, editing, prepping mm. constantly. And to go to news radio where all I had to do was show up and act. And I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to put on a dress for the most part. <laughs> So I think, was, I think you get one on at least once, right? Once they did it once over my objections. <laughs> I kept, I, I kept saying, oh, come on. This is just a kids in the hall reference. As, as you mentioned, you know, you worked with, with a great team of, of writers, obviously, but also, uh, actors, uh, the late Phil Hartman, uh, yeah. uh was, was, uh, somebody, um, who was just amazing. And I can, I can only imagine what that must've been like working with him. Yeah. Well, Phil had what I used to call perfect comedy pitch. You know, there was like, he, and Kevin, and I used to talk about, uh, going into a scene and coming back with a full harvest, you know, and Phil was a guy who always came back with a full harvest. If there was, if there was a laugh there to be found, he got it. There was nothing left behind, you know? And, uh, so he was, yeah, he was amazing to watch. He also, he also got to work with Joe Rogan before he started eating bugs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, making other people eat bugs, more to the point. Because right. Joe, Joe's right, actually exactly. Yeah. 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 Because Joe's Joe is actually too much of a pussy to eat them himself. <laughs> you've, you've done a lot of voice work through the years as well as working on stage, as, as you mentioned, and, and movies. Do you have a preference? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I guess acting acting where I get to use my face too is nice. But I love doing I love doing voice work. I love certainly. I, I guess it's again it's because of the projects I've been lucky enough to do, uh, like getting getting my first big voiceover gig being uh a bug's life you know this the very the second pixar movie of all time mm. you know getting to work with like andrew stanton and john lassiter who are just like just unparalleled at what they do yeah working with those those people was very inspiring all of the kids in the hall have worked together on a few things through the years including a live show tour in 2008 mm -hmm. uh, which led to death comes to town um, an eight episode Canadian series that ran on CBC in 2010. And now what seems to be a very well received return to the sketch format with the new series on Amazon. How did this reunion come to be? Uh, I, I think it's my fault. Um, okay. you're going to take the blame. <laughs> I'm going to take the blame for it. Uh, like, okay, yeah, around 2000, like in, um, November, 2018, I started calling up our old, our old, uh, producers at, Broadway video and saying, uh, you know, next year's our 30th anniversary of the show starting. It would be great to do something to commemorate it. And, you know, and at the time I just lied and said, all the kids are into it. Everyone mm -hmm. wants to do it. And I hadn't talked to anybody. <laughs> uh, so I started talking to them and, uh, and then I, you know, and I also talked to some other production companies and got them to talk to Broadway video, got various people interested in it. And eventually, uh, it sort of gelled at Broadway video. And we were able to get preliminary kind of, uh, offers from Netflix and Amazon at the time. 
And Amazon was the, the one that seemed to more, most interested in letting us go straight into making a new series. So we, that's where it went. And then, uh, then I just had to get all the other kids interested. Yeah. So how did that go? Hey, I've, <laughs> I've done the hard work. Somebody's yeah. interested. Are you in? Yeah. It, well, it's, it, it, in, you know, the usual kids in the hallway as well. Well, first, let me think of how I can ruin this. <laughs> there must be some way that this is bad. And eventually I was able to convince them all that, no, this was a good thing and that we would have fun and enjoy it. And so after, after a little bit of time, all, all, uh, all of the other four guys, uh, got excited about doing it. And then it was just a question of figuring out exactly what that show was going to be. And, uh, you know, and as we started writing, it kind of just came, just sort of naturally came into our heads that we wanted to shape it as a, as a just continuation of the last time you saw us, you know, not trying and not do it as any kind of a reinvention, you know, which in a way, I guess, uh, death comes to town. We were trying to sort of, uh, do something that was a reinvention of the group. Um, and this, we said, let's just see, let's just pick it up right from that last moment that the, that the audience last saw us act, act like nothing else has happened. Yeah. Like 27 years just went by and you were sort of lying there in the ground, uh, not dead, strangely enough. I mentioned the premise of there being a curse on the kids that is broken at the beginning of the first episode when someone spends a dollar on a used brain candy VHS tape, which I love, which strangely somehow meant that the movie is now finally broken even. And then we see you guys being dug up from the collective grave. We left you in at the end of the last season of the original show and, and away you go. How much time did you guys spend writing? And then how long did it take to shoot the eight episodes? Well, it's weird because we started writing in, I guess, what, what year did the pandemic start? That was, uh, 20, 2020, mm -hmm. right? So we are like February of 2020, we, we got together and started writing in Toronto. Uh, Mark McKinney was writing remotely cause he was still in production on Superstore for NBC. Mm. So we started writing and between February and March of, of 2020, we wrote about eight episodes worth of material. Wow. And, uh, so we were just sort of going into the, uh, polishing and rewriting phase. And suddenly this, uh, this COVID thing pandemic hit, yeah. started hitting, started getting talked about more and more. Uh -huh. And eventually, uh. I think March 13th, I decided I was going to go home for a weekend to see my family home to LA. And, uh, that weekend lasted a year because they closed the border as soon as I got back to Los Angeles. Right. So we had to shut down for a year. And then when we came back, we came back to start by that time, the troop gets bored easily. So people were sort of getting bored of some of the old, the stuff we wrote a year ago and mm. said, well, let's, let's write for another month and, and come up with some other stuff. So we had another month of writing. And, uh, sort of wrote a bunch of new sketches that pushed out some of the stuff that we'd written the year before. And so it's, so, so the writing happened over a, a year long period, but it was actually written very quickly. Like all the material was written in about two months time. And in fact, we, we wrote far more material than we, than we were able to fit into the shows. It's a different world for, um. Well, for everybody, I, I guess, not just, not just comedians, but, um, the world's changed a lot since 1996 yes. and, uh, it's a different world than it was 10 years ago. I mean, from the point of view of writing comedy, did you guys have to sort of look yeah. at that as you sat down to write? It's, it's a, well, it's a weird thing because it's a world that's both, it's more thoughtful, but also vastly more venomous. Um, cause it's like, we created these tools for communication. And then realized, you know, that like we had these smartphones in our pockets. Then we realized these are also a great way to destroy everyone else. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, so I, I think, I mean, 
I think overwhelmingly, I think the changes in society, I think have been positive ones, uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of people, you know, learning to understand other viewpoints and other ways of living. And I mean, when we, when we started, you know, it was if the stuff we were doing was considered shocking just because we had the temerity to, you know, to say that, you know, homosexuals are people too. And that, that was controversial. And so now it's nice that, that, you know, there's more embrace of difference. Um, but then again, you know, then, then at the same time, we're looking at this awful rise of, uh, you know, white supremacy, which has also been powered by the same technology hmm. and, uh, you know, and just this, the ease with which people on all sides manage to hate each other hmm. is also really disturbing. And, uh, the, the difficulty in hearing viewpoints that don't immediately mesh with your own, uh, I, I think has become really entrenched. Everything is so reactionary and, and obviously there was no social media in, uh, in the early nineties. No, people had to write letters to the, to the CBC and angry letters. Yes. And put a stamp on them and put them oh in a mailbox. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe, maybe phone in if you were, could get through. If you're really angry. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. were, yeah. We were once on the elevator with a woman who had to answer all the angry phone calls and we got on the elevator and she looked at us and went, ah, oh, every time your show airs, I know my next day is going to be horrible. <laughs> How long did it take you to, to shoot this season? Uh, we shot just over a couple, just a couple of months. I think it was like mm. two and a half, two and a half months we, we shot. So pretty quick, uh, really. Yeah, it was very. It was a pretty quick schedule, and then you know, then there was a few months of editing, uh, um, packaging. What, was it a fun shoot? I watched a couple of interviews um, with all of you actually last night. And one of them was uh, a CBC interview, and and everybody just seemed so happy. I think the the interview took place on set. Yes. Yeah, I, I was the only one in costume. Yeah, you were. You were actually in, in costume uh, as, uh, as, as Motormouth in the morning, who I want to talk to you about in, yeah. in, in a moment. But everybody just seemed to be having such a great time. Was it a fun set? It was. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, you know, we still fought a little because we always do. But everybody was really enjoying being together and enjoying, you know, just making each other laugh and, and working on each other's scripts. It was like, you know, it's, it's the... It's, that's the time when we're when it's the five of us together is the time when we each are the most like ourselves, if that makes sense. One of the things I loved about that interview, though, was you also talked about because you're a little older and look, we all get older, hopefully, and mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully evolve a, a little bit. Mm -hmm. One of the things you guys and you all, all agreed was that you're not in competition anymore. You guys don't feel like you need to compete with each other anymore. Things have sort of shifted. Well, because when you're inventing yourself and when you're young, uh, you feel like everything is life or death, you know, and it's, you, you can feel like, like if, if that guy does something that's, that, that guy's going to do something that's going to destroy everything we've tried to build. And you, you feel like every day you're, you're fighting for that, uh, for that vision of whatever the show is or whatever mm -hmm. the troop is. And now we, now we, I don't think we really care about that. I think we've, you know, for better or worse, our, our legacy days are behind us. Right. So, so now it's just like, what the hell, let's just be as funny and have as much fun as we can. Yeah. I'm yeah. I mean, we've always been pretty egocentric as a group and only, only look to each other for criticism or praise. And we've never looked outside the group, but now I think the, uh, yeah, I think the competition within the group is much, much healthier than it used to be. There's so many great moments in, in the new show. I've watched six of the eight so far. Oh, well, thank you. 
And I would just uh, suggest to those of you listening who haven't seen it, find a way to do that tonight or tomorrow. But before we jump into our music questions, as a guy who has done a lot of radio through the years, that's me, mm-hmm. as opposed to you playing a guy on the radio. Yeah, you can tell by our voices. One of us has one of us has a beautiful voice. Uh, you. The other one, the other one sounds like a broken, uh, uh, like a broken oboe. I want to talk about Motormouth in the morning. How did that recurring sketch uh, and that character, I guess, uh, in episode three, come about? And I'll, I'll let you tell the story. But but essentially, you know, the, the world is done. Uh, there's the, it seems like the last DJ is is in his basement and he's got one song. Yeah, Motormouth. He has he has only one single left. His entire record collection is destroyed in a kind of uh, vaguely outlined apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And um, it started, I, I wrote it originally for a variety show that my wife was putting on in Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, she used to do these, the, she called them the C&C variety shows that she did with a friend, of her, her friend Claudia. And so I would do guest bits in those shows every once in a while. And so this was sort of a written pre-COVID, but in the depths of another uh, plague uh, called the Trump administration. And it was kind of a response to my despair uh, about that particular point in history. Right. And so I did it in that show. I did it all as one piece and it's, which I think you can get away with on stage as a length. It was a lengthy piece where literally I was sitting on stage and playing, playing the song through mm-hmm. over and over again and sitting there and staring in, in front of a live audience. And then, so when they, we started doing the Kids and All show, I re- remembered it and thought, well, I could, I could rework that. And I, I took out some of the, the political and topical stuff that was in it and uh, rewrote it as a, as a three-parter. It was a three-parter, wasn't it? Yeah, three-parter. I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I rewrote it as, a, as the three-parter. And uh, it was, the other Kids in the Hall got it right away, even just from the page. But I think other people around us couldn't quite figure out why we liked it and because the, they couldn't envision that moment of transition from the uh from the the morning dj to the completely shattered human being it's deeply funny and deeply depressing at the at the same time i guess that, that makes it a good kids in the whole piece like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and i should point out we're going to talk about music now but that music is the uh, melanie song brand new key and yeah. it's it's all motor mouth has and he just sort of keeps coming back and yeah and i don't think i i don't think i could have written the piece if if i couldn't have got i if I couldn't have gotten the rights to that music, I don't know if I would have done the piece. Oh, really? honestly, because I when I wrote it, there was never another song that I that I thought of using. It's just such a joyful song, and and I remember it as a, from my childhood and loving that song as a kid so much. I had the single and played it to death, and I couldn't think of any song that made more sense than that one. So now we're we're segueing into music. All right, yeah, naturally, naturally done. Okay. What, what is your first musical memory? My first musical memory, I think that stands out. I mean, there, there are vague ones before this, but I really, rem- I have a strong memory of standing around a little cassette recorder. Uh, I think we're actually at my aunt Phil's house with this little recorder in 1967 and my, my little brother and my older sister and myself stood there and sang every song from the Sgt. Pepper's album. Wow. Into this, into this little tape recorder. And that's when, one of my first strong memories. So I was, I guess I was four. Wow. At that time. So, so the Beatles, the Beatles got you straight away. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, by, oh, I, when the Beatles split up, I was heartbroken. I really thought I was going to get, I was going to get to join the band when I grow up. Right. Cause you're like, oh, it's already done. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing. Why, why even go on? Yeah. What was the first music you bought with your own money? You know, for a while, I kept thinking it was, uh, that it was yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy. Uh, but I'm wrong. I remembered that it, the, the first one I bought with my own money was two divided by love, uh, by the grassroots. I don't, I don't know the grassroots. Yeah. It, no one remembers them, but they were, but they were really good, like pop band. And there was like 1971 and the song, yeah, two, two divided by love can only be one. And one is a lonely number. Oh, and, I know the song now. now yeah. That, now that you're saying, yeah. Giving yeah. Me the yeah. But yeah, I, you know, but yeah, I, I forgot it was the grassroots too for a long time. And I kept going, who did that song? But I think that's the first thing I meant. I, Cause I think singles in those days cost about 50 cents. Sure. And so I think that's the first one I actually went to the store with my mom and, and bought it with the, my own 50 cents that I'd saved up. I was in England around that time, obviously. I was a kid. I think I'm a couple of years yeah. uh, on, on you. And, and I remember going to the store every week with 50 pence mm -hmm. to, to buy a single. And that, yeah. was, that was it. That was my pocket money or allowance or, or whatever it was. And I would go yeah. buy a, a single every week. Did you buy singles? Was, was that a part of your, uh, you know, early teenagehood? Were you, were you down the local record store every week buying whatever was on the charts that week? Uh, well, singles was more of my act, my childhood before my teen years. I, right. by the, by, by teen years, I was mostly buying albums, but, but as, as a kid, it was, yeah, we had like stacks and stacks of singles, you know, and, and just devour them. And that's, I think, cause you would, you would listen to that one single over and over and over again until you, until you had, you knew every nuance of it. Um, you know, and then, then, uh, later with albums, it took a little, little longer to, to devour it, the, the, the albums. But yeah, I used to like, I'm like having like, as a little, as a little kid with a skipping rope as a microphone singing, you know, born to be wild. <laughs> Steppenwolf, yeah. right? Yeah. Steppenwolf. Yeah. Not, nothing like a, like a, a six-year-old who believes he was born to be wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was the first concert you went to without adult supervision? I guess this counts because I went with my older brother and he wasn't really an adult, or at least he wasn't a very, he was a, he was a not very responsible. Right. Uh, I went to see the Rolling Stones, some girls tour. Wow. At Rich Stadium in Buffalo. And uh, with, with my brother and one of his friends, who's Kevin, I forget his name now. But, uh, and my brother like taught me how to be at a Rolling Stones concert. For, you know, first off, he taught me how to buy beer on the, on the walk into the stadium. Uh, so we bought some American beer and he explained, this beer is terrible. <laughs> Just know all American beer is terrible. And, uh, yeah. you know, and then we got in there and, he, and he's giving me advice like, uh, now what, you know, a little bit before the stones come out, everyone's going to charge the stage. You just got to be prepared. Right. Cause of back in the old days of, uh, festival seating in the, 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 uh, stadium. Right. So I, so he, you know, prepped me and taught me everything, you know, but we managed to charge up and work our way up to like just a couple hundred feet from the stage. And, uh, yeah. so that was my first big concert. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's not a bad way to start, you know, and you talk about the event, obviously, when you go and see a show like that, it's, it's not yeah. just going to see a band, it's the event, as you mentioned, you know, getting up there, buying beer, getting in, figuring yeah. out when the right time to sort of surge forward is, but what about the music? I mean, it sounds like you were reasonably close to, to the stage. What was it like? What was that feeling like seeing the Rolling Stones up that close? Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a full body experience because, you know, 
just the, the volume of it and the intensity of it and just the, the intensity of the humanity around you mm. uh, it was pretty overwhelming. And again, and it was, it was, and it was also hearing the new album, Some Girls, which is a, a great, great album. Mm-hmm. But it was hearing all of these songs that were playing throughout my entire childhood, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to actually see, being close enough to really see Mick Jagger singing them, you know, was, uh, it, it was a really, it was like just an overwhelming experience and, you know, probably to probably still the greatest concert experience of my life. It's a good way to start. That's for sure. Yeah. What, what, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Uh, <laughs> do you dance? Uh, I listen, you know, not well, that's why. And so as a result, when I want to dance, I listen to London calling. That's like, you know, because I can't dance. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, challenged. Uh, I'm, I'm trying you know. to imagine you dancing to, to the clash. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. I can punk rock dance. Yeah. I can't do any other kind of dancing. Little Poe going, bouncing yeah, off the wall. Yeah. Bouncing. Yeah. 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 Thumping into each other. What know? about, uh, what about if you're feeling sad? Do you, do you listen to music when you're sad? I talk to some people and they say, yeah, I want to, I, I listen to music that gets me out of that. And then other people are like, no, I go right in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't tunnel into sadness. I try to avoid it. Uh, I guess the, the one, there's one piece of music that is the one I, the one piece of music that I, I maintain no one can listen to and feel sad or it's the most joyful piece of music I can think of. And it's a song, it's a piece by Roland Kirk called Volunteered Slavery from the Volunteered Slavery album. And it's just this outrageously exuberant piece of music. And ever since I was, uh, again, going back to probably like 1970, uh, I, I, anytime I've heard that piece of music, I, I just can't feel sad while I'm listening to it. So I recommend that to anyone. Be aware it's jazz, but it's jazz that just rocks like, like crazy. The kids in the hall are kind of like jazz really, aren't they? Well, in that we're old and boring. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way at all. I just sort of meant like yeah. sort of all over the place and sort of, you know, trying different things and then coming back and meeting in the middle and then going out to the outsides again. Yeah. I, well, I do think yeah, the kids and all, yeah, it's, I'd like, I'd like to think we're like jazz, that we're like just drawing in as many influences as possible and that we're always trying to you sort of, uh, rearrange them in interesting ways, you know? Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite music video? Oh, a favorite music video. Hmm. Hmm. Let me think. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing if, it, if I have a favorite, it's probably Bowie, you know, it might, it might still be, uh, ashes to ashes. Yeah. I Is think. that the one where he's on the beach? Is yeah. It- and he's in that weird clown costume. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah, which they used in that British series. They did the uh, the the sequel to uh, Life on Mars. They did the uh, they use that. Yeah, Ashes. They use they use that that clown as a character in the in the series. Which oh wow! Weird. Yeah, it was interesting. But I love that. Yeah, I love that video. It was just so bizarre and arty, and and it was and I, that that album was uh, you know the the Scary Monsters album was one of those albums where you go oh. I don't understand anything about this album. Right. Everything about it sounds weird and different. I'm not sure how this is music. Yeah, but I love it. Yeah. And, uh, and then it, now, of course, it's, it's so much in, a part of all of us and our memories that it, that it seems normal now. But it, the, the first time you heard it, like those, uh, those weird guitar solos by Adrian Ballou and 
just unbelievable like sounds that they that they used. Did you ever get a chance or have you ever had a chance in your career and uh, being out and about in, in the world of showbiz to meet uh, Bowie or Jagger or any of these musical heroes? I never got to, I never got to meet Bowie. I, I, uh, I once, when we were making Kids in Law, flew to New York uh, when he was on SNL hmm. and I flew down, not so much for the show, but I flew down to go to the sound check on Friday because we were allowed to go in. So you could, we could go stand on the floor at 8H. Hmm. And I got to stand about like 20 feet from David Bowie when he was sound checking with uh, Tin Machine. And it was amazing because in their sound check, he did like a bunch of old Bowie songs. You know, he was like doing, they did, they rebel rebel and stuff as just part of their sound check just yeah. to warm up. Sometimes if you're fortunate enough to get into a sound check, it's better than being at the show because it's you and a, a few friends and it's almost like a little private show yeah. before thousands yeah. of people come in. Or, but, it, yeah. but I didn't have the courage to say anything to him. Uh, I was too shy. I did that again. The only other time I did it was when Elvis Costello was on Saturday Night Live. And again, I didn't have the courage to say anything. But years later, I got to meet Elvis Costello at the Austin Powers premiere party. Oh, wow. And we hit it off and we've become, we've been acquaintances ever since. Nice. So I actually got to take my, my daughter, who is a singer songwriter. Um, so I got to take her to meet Elvis Costello after a show in Los Angeles. That must have been and, fun for her. Yeah. And I also got to introduce her to Liz Fair, which was nice. And and recently Amy Mann. So is your daughter making and releasing music? She's making it but not releasing it, which is frustrating to me. Because she's she's actually extremely talented, like amazing songwriter. Um so I keep encouraging her to record stuff and, and also to go out and start playing live and experience like what it's like to perform in front of an audience. Is she living in, in LA? She lives in, we, yeah, she lives in LA, although she's now, uh, during the school year, she's here in New York at Sarah Lawrence. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, which is nice because I'm actually, I actually, I'm living only like 15 minutes from, uh, where Sarah Lawrence is. Yeah. You told me before we opened up the, uh, the microphones that you just recently moved to New York after a whole bunch of years in LA, like probably as long as me, right? 26 years. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. 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 Um, that, that's, that's a big shift and we don't need to talk about it, but, uh, yeah. how are you dealing with such a major change? It's, it's been disorienting, uh, honestly, very disorienting. And I'm, I'm starting to settle into it, you know, well, I mean, I don't mind. I mean, I say like I'm, I moved here when my, my wife and I, um, split up recently. So that was, you know, this is all adapting to a lot of changes and you really, I gotta say, there's nothing better than being single at 60. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, cause the world just, the world is your oyster when you're 60. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, I don't, it's like, I can't, some days I, I can't even go outside. It's just, it's just too dangerous. I'm just thinking about it now. You know, we're talking about how things have changed since you guys were doing comedy 25, 30 years ago. I mean, dating, I mean, there's apps. I mean, that's how people meet now. I mean, have you, have you bothered yeah. with that yet or? I, I know about, there isn't, there's an app I know that's specifically geared to people, I guess, in the entertainment industry. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, but you're not supposed to talk about it. It's like Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if that pays any dividends. We'll see. Back to the music. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, sure. There's a bunch. The one, I'm one, one that I've really loved a lot in the lot recent years is a band called the lemon twigs mm. uh do you know them they're from long island yeah yeah they're just fantastic they're kind of kind of like a 
they've got a great kind of seventies power pop sound kind of young guys. Little, yeah. Yeah. A little bit, a little kind of a Todd Rundgren kind of production value to some of the stuff they do. And, and they're, they're amazing. Uh, and you know, so I've I really, I've been really liking them. And then there's a bunch of stuff that my daughters kind of, uh, turned me on to people like, like wise blood and, mm -hmm. and Phoebe Bridgers, I think is, is brilliant. Right. And I was, who else I'm thinking of, uh, Mitski, I like her. Man, you are plugged in. Your kid is turning you on to the to the right stuff. Oh, she's so smart, and and, and just turning me on to old stuff too. Like she got me uh, into like ELO, uh, which is a band as a teenager I dismissed. You know, yeah, despised probably even electric light, electric light orchestra. Yeah, I was going. Yeah, no, I'm listening to Talking Bombastic Heads and, and XTC and right. you know, yeah, and Elvis Costello. I'm you know, and I'm, now I'm going. Oh wow, they're really fantastic songs. And I, I have, uh, sorry, go on. No, you, uh, you go. You <laughs> feel like I'm treading all over you here. That's, that's the trouble with an, an Englishman and a Canadian. That's the, yeah, uh, an over, uh, yeah, an over overdosing on etiquette. <laughs> no, you please. No, sorry. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say was I have, uh, I have 19 year old twins, um, a son and a daughter. And my daughter in particular is always asking me about music, you know, not asking me for recommendations, but asking me, do you know this band? Do you, do you mm -hmm. know that band? And it, it's, it's interesting. They discover a lot of music now through television, through TV shows. There's, you know, so much music being used these days in, yeah. in television. And my kid will play a song and I say, where'd you hear that? And she's like, oh, you know, some TV show or other, which is a yeah. different, different way of doing it. Do you have a, an artist that you love, but think that perhaps they never got the big break they should have? Um, I'm trying to think who would fit into that category. I guess one would, one would be my friend, uh, Jason Faulkner. I know Jason. You know Jason? Yeah, Jason. I think he's a genius uh, songwriter, producer, arranger. Uh, he was he was in The Greys with John Bryan. Right. Right, before uh, before they started hating each other. <laughs> uh, and then he's done, a, he's done a number of solo albums that I, me I remember I first heard him because of uh, uh, Steve Root from News Radio brought me uh, an album of of Jason's stuff, and and I remember going out to see them in the uh, Poptopia Festival that used to happen in Los Angeles. Right, and you know, and then you know, the nice thing about being on TV is I could go up and just say, "Hey, will you be my friend?" Yeah. After a show, yeah. So we've been friends since then, and he's yeah. like tour eats toured with Beck for years. He played with the French band Air, and uh, yeah. his his band Jellyfish. Yes, yes. I'd love that album by them. Good call, Dave. All right. Do you have a, a band or or an artist uh, who you would define as a, a guilty pleasure? Um, I well, I know what the concept is, but I don't think I've ever felt guilty about any pleasure. Fair enough. And so I'm not sure who would call. I I don't know. Would I? I'm like would like would Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga count? Yeah, I think that would be something that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily ex expect. Yeah, I think they're both. In two of the most interesting artists around because I think they've both done amazing jobs of reinvention. Uh, like they both like recreated themselves in really interesting ways. And the only, the only artist I can compare them to in that regard is, is David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like, and I think like Miley Cyrus, I think a lot of people dismiss because, you know, think she's just outrageous, but she's, she's a really smart, talented person with an amazing voice. And oddly enough, I actually saw because of the, putting Melanie and the kids in the hall show, uh, somebody tipped me off to a video of Miley Cyrus, uh, singing, look what they done to my song, ma by Melanie. Yeah. With, uh, with Melanie. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's just fantastic. She does have an amazing voice. There's, there's yeah. no doubt about that. Uh, okay. So we're going to wrap up this little part of the, the conversation. And that is my last question. How are you feeling right now? <laughs> um, well, I guess hearkening back to my early, earlier comments, uh, disoriented, mm. disoriented most, a lot of the time. Right. And, uh, and, to, and if, if I'm honest, a little sad a lot of the time right now. Yeah. 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 Um, because of stuff that's going on in, in, in your life or the world in general? Well, right now it's the stuff in my life. Uh, you know, I had, pl I, I gave the world plenty of time to make me sad. <laughs> so now, now I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, enjoying some of my own personal sadness. How do you deal with that? Um, I don't know. I think, I think part just by, uh, you know, I, I'm Canadian and I had an English mother. Mm. Uh, so my, my instinct is to not, is to try to avoid being in touch with my emotions at all. Stiff upper lip and all that. Yeah. But I think distraction is part of it. And I think I also, I try to allow myself a certain amount of time every day to just feel whatever the hell I'm feeling. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. And pay attention to it. You know, it's interesting, you know, we're both older guys mm -hmm. as, uh, as, as we've sort of addressed, but, but, but still sexy. I mean, look at, yeah. Oh, look at this. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned earlier on in the conversation about hopefully we evolve as we, as we get older, but sometimes it's just really about sitting in it, isn't it? Just sitting in, you know, whatever life has, however the cards have fallen and wherever you're at at a certain age, you've just got to sort of like be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've had like lifelong bouts of depression mm -hmm. and I think one of the things I'm very keenly aware of right now is is knowing that I'm not depressed and I'm actually taking some real, uh, encouragement from that. So, so just being sad feels healthy. And, uh, so I, that's why, you know, so I'd encourage anyone out there who's depressed, do something about it. Absolutely. But, but uh, sadness is, uh, it's important because if you, if you, if there's no sadness in your life, you, you can't be paying attention. Right. So the reception for this new show that, that that's got to feel good. Is, well, as good as I can feel, again, having been raised by an English mother. I remember once uh, my, my, uh, my wife, actually at a time when we were separated for, we were separated for a long time before we got back together about five years ago, but she threw a 50th birthday party for me. And it was a wonderful night with so many of my best friends from comedy and music all got up and performed at this party. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I was raised by an English mom, so I can only guess this is what being loved feels like. <laughs> Unfortunately, I get exactly what you're, I was never held or touched or anything. Well, yeah. <laughs> It'll ruin them. Now go out and see the world. Don't die. Yeah. But seriously, back to this new season, social media is alive with it. We didn't have that before. We touched on uh. that a little bit earlier. There's almost like an instant gratification and feedback from the audience, right? It, it is really interesting to be able to, to have a, have a, a, a conversation one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, if you take, if you're willing to take the time mm. and to be able to hear actual viewers opinions and not being filtered through, through, through media, it is really interesting. And, uh, the fact that the emotional response to the show coming back has been really uh, a bit of a bit surprising, just how, how emotionally uh, it's affecting people. But there's, there's got to be a generational thing to this, right? People who grew up with you and have missed you for 25 plus years are all of a sudden, so, oh my gosh, it's, it's like connecting to a part of your past. 
It is. I think it's it's pulling people back into their youth when they were when they felt like they were pushing the edge and you know they were changing the world, you know. And uh, and it's because that's the people that were into the kids in the hall, the people that were that were kind of outsiders and weirdos and right, you know. And uh, you know, so those people are having the emotional response, especially. I hear so much about people saying that they teared up when they first hear the, the the opening notes from the Shadowy Men song, Having an Average Weekend. Yeah. Like just hearing that music made people cry. And and I understand that feeling. But then I guess there's the the kids who were raised by these people too are uh, having, uh, talking about, you know, growing up, watching watching the show with their parents and being, you know, even if they were forced to. You know, I actually met a young, like a young woman on the, on the subway platform last night who was like staring at me and, and I thought, she, well, she can't know who I am. She's, mm. she's way too young, but she's, you know, said I'm an, I'm a nineties kid. I, you know, I was born in the nineties, but I just, you know, I, I just, I love, I love your show and it was great, great to meet you. And was, so, you know, there's, there's some, you know, some young people coming on board, which is nice. Do you think you'll do more? Uh, I think so. I think, I think every, I think everyone in the group is up for it. Uh, we just have to see what the Prime Video's algorithm thinks of it. Uh, I'm not sure where they keep the algorithm or what they feed it. Uh, but if the algorithm is happy, then uh, then they will. Uh, then the algorithm will allow it to happen. Yeah, yeah. So that may and that may happen as as, as soon as this summer. We may be back, get back together and start writing. If if the if there's if the demand is there. Sounds good, Dave. It's been a real pleasure hanging out with you for uh, for the last hour or so. Good to have kids in in the hall back. Thanks for 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 being on the sound of success. Well, thanks for having me. I I really I I'm genuinely a, a a great fan of your of your work. So it's been a pleasure, man. Really, thank you so much. The sound of success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, SparkNetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 